All right, hello everyone. Thank you for coming out on this rainy day today. I am happy to um, introduce our moderator today. So we have Dave Bros here with us. During his 25-year career, Dave has worn many hats as architect, professor, and urbanist. As an architect, he has worked alongside organizations and impacted nearly 10 million square feet of space. Now, as a professor teaching at his longtime client, Columbia College, Chicago, his design students research the future of our downtown, publishing um, on their findings about where downtowns are headed um, in a post-pandemic social justice-focused era, specifically looking at State Street and the Loop. Dave is also an unapologetic urbanophile, urbanophile, <laughs> lover of cities. Um, as a past chair and longtime board member of the Chicago Loop Alliance, he has guided the organization towards highly successful and award-winning award urban space activations, such as Alley Activate and Sundays on State Street, to help people fall back in love with the city of Chicago after the pandemic. He also founded and moderated the Downtown Future Series, a quarterly conversation about where downtowns are headed that ran for five years. All right, Dave, why don't you start us off? Is an organization up here. Hold on. All right, great. Uh, thanks for having me here today to help moderate what should be a great panel discussion. Uh, to echo what Teresa said, thanks for all coming out on a rainy day and not choosing to click on the Zoom link. So you're all here in person. We appreciate it. I'm sorry. Go for it. You have a mic. I have a mic. All right, that's much easier for me. <clears throat> so, um, uh, just so you know, the Chicago Loop Alliance is a not-for-profit uh, that creates, manages, and promotes uh, positive and inclusive programs that attract people to the loop and accelerate economic recovery. Before the pandemic, the organization was well-known for its Downtown Future Series um, and Alley Activate events. This was an event where a tweet would go out 24 hours uh, before we took over an alley and threw an impromptu party with music, dancing, art, and drinking in a quintessential Chicago experience, an alley. That was that photo. Uh, the Chicago Loop Alliance is also known to have great relationship with the arts community, being, uh, bringing major public art not only to the alleys, but also to State Street with Kay Rosen and the Go Do Good, Jessica Stockholder and Color Jam, and even Tony Tassett's Eye that graced Pritzker Park about 15 years ago. We also started a street ambassador program in the city, which this past summer was expanded to over a dozen neighborhoods across the city, where unarmed workers are guides to curious tourists, extra eyes on the street for wrongdoing, and build rapport with the homeless on the street. Chicago Loop Alliance also creates economic impact studies. We do master planning documents for the loop, whether it be identifying the 55,000 college students that are in the loop, the millions of dollars of annual impact that the arts community has in the loop, or partnering with other organizations, such as looking at the future of LaSalle Street or the Cultural Mile. And things were going great until March of 2020 when the pandemic hit. But high above the street and on State Street and many blocks in the Loop, the Loop Alliance about 10 years ago installed counters. And those counters are able to track pedestrian activity and vehicular activity. So that big drop you see on the left-hand side of your slide is what happened in March of 2020 when everyone stayed at home. Uh, so since then, we've been tracking recovery, uh, not only with uh, the most recent quarterly report that just came out showing that a Parking reservations are at 124% higher than pre-pandemic 2019 levels. Hotel industry is at 85% high of the 2019 levels. CTA is at 73%. Um, and office occupancy has finally broke the 50% window at 54%. What's interesting with this with the Loop Alliance, too, is we're able to compare it with other cities across the country. And our results are pretty much tracking where other cities are at, uh, with the exception of a couple larger cities in Texas. 
So as the recovery built momentum, the Loop Alliance also created Sundays on State Street to give residents, tourists, and workers an opportunity to return to the city on any of the 10 Sundays in 2021 or eight Sundays in 2022 on their own time, at their own pace, with their own distance, in an outdoor open-air environment. <clears throat> the goal was to provide an event that accelerates people to fall back in love with the city. For when we were sequestered to our private residences and all we saw of downtown was what was reported on the news every night, we needed to reacquaint our population with just how great the loop is. And the results were more than we ever could have imagined. We attracted attendees from over 77 different neighborhoods and we brought the street higher, we brought this the, the pedestrian traffic on the street higher to pre-pandemic levels in the weeks that we hosted a Sundays on State Street. So as, at the same time, as Teresa mentioned, I've been teaching at Columbia College Chicago, and my senior design students researched and envisioned what a post-pandemic, social justice-focused era of downtowns would be, and we produced this book. The Reader's Digest version is that the 30 students uh, proposed and designed solutions that really look nothing like what's been in the downtown for the last several decades. They proposed, rather than it being a singular white-collar work district, to being a much more inclusive, welcoming, and diverse experience. So here are the QR codes for both the Loop Alliance quarterly reports and the student work on reimagined a vision for downtown, uh, a vision for an inclusive downtown. I also have them up at my desk so we can talk about it after. So now that we've seen the data, let's get into, dig into our knowledge of experts and have a conversation. So let me introduce, hold on. Let me introduce uh, Brian, who's first, yeah. Uh, let me introduce Brian. Uh, Brian is the managing director at Heinz Chicago and leads all aspects of office leasing in the Chicago market for both Heinz and, and investor-owned assets while partnering with the Chicago Asset Management Acquisition and Development teams. Most recently, he assisted in the negotiations to secure the dual anchors of Salesforce and Kirkland and Ellis for the 1.2 million square foot office development at Wolf Point. Brian has more than 22 years of experience in the commercial real estate industry, representing both landlords and tenants throughout his career. Joining Hines in 2013, Brian has completed more than 3 million square feet of leasing transactions. Brian is an active member of the Chicago real estate community and has served as a board member for the Chicago Office Leasing Brokers Association for the past four years. He also is a founding member of the Chicago Return Initiative to encourage business community to return to in-person work post-pandemic to support the Chicago Central Business District. Brian holds a Bachelor in Arts in Economics from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Chicago, and a Master's of Business Administration from the Kelstat Graduate School of Management at DePaul University. Outside the office, he's a husband, father of two active boys, part-time youth sport coach, and a competitive amateur golfer. Welcome, Brian. Thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, thanks to Cornette. Thanks to Sheila for reaching out. Um, I am a little concerned because the first thing I heard when I walked in the door today was uh, my friend Jason Streepy asked if I was going to tell people to come back to work, which means I've been on the circuit for about a year and I've had a lot to say about this and I'll have a few more things to say about it today, but I, I'm absolutely a supporter of, of return to office and not just for our own selfish reasons, but just for the ecosystem of our city and what it means for the future of our, of our uh, community. A couple notes up above regarding Heinz. A lot of us know the, the brand name, and, and maybe some of you do, some of you don't, but a couple of quick notes. Um, you know, Heinz was founded in, founded in 1957. Mr. Heinz founded the firm in Houston, Texas. Uh, we've since grown tremendously. We're in 28 countries, and we have, um, I forget what the data is up above me, but 200, maybe 285 cities. And we do development, which is what we're well known for here, but we also do asset management, we also do property management, and we've expanded our investment management platform. And so that's a little history on the organization for those of you that maybe aren't as familiar. The Midwest region itself was founded in the early 80s. Our first foundational development here was 70 West Madison, or Three First National, for those of us that know. And our most recent completed project will be Salesforce Tower, which will open here in the next coming weeks. We have a, a multitude of assets, both residential development, trophy office tower development. We would really like to execute a couple of timber office buildings, which I know we'll talk about with Guy as well. 
and we've we've entered the multifamily space in 2013, and and now not just in the Chicago area, but also globally, that fills out about half of our uh, development pipeline. And so we've recently done industrial projects in Indianapolis, and we continue to hunt industrial opportunities, and we have an expansive retail piece as well. And so we're not just uh, the trophy office developer, but we're in a lot of different spaces, and we'll talk about some of the redevelopment work we're doing for clients in town as today. These are just a few quick pictures. It's weird to have it right up above your head. <laughs> These are a few quick, quick pictures of projects that we have touched. Lincoln Commons is up here, which is the repositioning and transformation of the old Children's Memorial Hospital site. Uh, there's a picture of the T3, which is our timber project. The park space at Salesforce Tower, which will be incredibly dynamic, similar to what we were able to reimagine around River Point. And we'll talk about several others as we go through it. So those are a quick couple notes on Heinz, and uh, look forward to the conversation, and happy to answer questions as we go, too. Perfect. Why don't you pass that on to Todd? All right, so let me introduce Todd. Todd's a senior vice president with CBRE, and for over a decade, he's specialized on leasing retail space in high-rise Class A office buildings, urban storefronts, mixed-use developments throughout Chicago and across America's high street retail markets. His expansive knowledge of market fundamentals and retail drivers enable him to develop and implement top-tier strategies to assist his clients with the procurement of quality tenants for the development, redevelopment, and repositioning of the retail assets. <clears throat> A specialist in urban retail development and consultancy, Todd has successfully planned and implemented numerous challenging high-profile retail mixed-use projects, including the development located at 730 North Michigan Avenue. In 2013, Todd collaborated with CBRE's New York office to complete Chicago's most high-profile transaction of the year, representation of Italy's 65,000-square-foot Chicago flagship. In 2017, Todd completed the transaction of the largest Starbucks in the world, 45,000 square feet on North Michigan Avenue. An active participant in the community, Todd serves as chairman for the, served as chairman for the 2013 Greater Chicago Food Depository's 25th Annual Real Estate Gala, an event that gener generated over a million dollars to fight local hunger. Welcome, Todd. Holy moly. Had I known you were going to, you know, read that, I would have just given you two sentences. I, I appreciate it. I took that, out David. the part about high school. Amazing. Wow. Um, I'll give you my email address afterwards. Um, guys, thank you so much for, for being here. Uh, you know, when retail is a unique animal, um, and certainly for the general consumer, it's one of the more exciting pieces of commercial real estate because you're able to touch it and feel it. Um, and, and more often than not, it, it makes headlines. Um, my team is responsible for our retail practice in North America uh, for a much larger commercial real estate firm in, in CBRE. And what that namely means is that we are integrating retail into mixed-use assets. Um, the thing I'm most proud of is that um, we're able to come to events like this and look on both sides of me and count both Brian and Guy as, as clients, um, and, and clients for almost, you know, almost two decades in both regards. And so, you know, being in the retail specialty, um, you, get to, you get to play with, with a lot of really intelligent, sophisticated clients. Um, what we're going to talk about today... Um, I, I really quickly is just give you the perspective of what's going on in retail from the landlord side uh, as well as as the the tenant side. Um, I, I think an opening primer very quickly is that there is absolutely no secret whatsoever that we are in a time of crisis. Um, inflation is the highest that it's been in 50 years, um, and there is broad-based impact as it relates to food, commodities, energy, labor. Um, and the pressure that these have uh, really ultimately flows down to consumer spending. Um, and when you talk about retail and retail real estate and the ability to execute a retail operation, you're, you're talking about consumer spending. So I think that um, the disruption that I'm going to talk about over the next couple minutes is actually a really good thing for, for retail. It's a good thing for real estate. Um, and it'll be interesting to keep our eye on over the next couple of years. So the first slide that I have here is a slide deck that is really from the landlord perspective. What are we seeing across the markets? When you, you, know, when you turn on the evening news, you're probably prone to seeing the announcements of bankruptcies. You know, most recent is Bed Bath & Beyond and the, the, the last minute injection of capital they just received to stave off bankruptcy. Um, 
you're, you're probably, you know, walking down North Michigan Avenue or our central business district, be it State Street or, or LaSalle, and you're seeing vacancies in the windows. Um, what's going on in, in, in North America is that there are less retailers that are out there expanding. And so when Brian and I sit down to put together a strategy for one of his buildings in Chicago, I am talking to him about what we're gonna be up against competing with, whether it's one Vanderbilt in New York or a new tower in San Francisco or, or Los Angeles. We are not just competing with vacant opportunities that exist down the street from us, but we're doing it on a much more national landscape. Um, the other side of that, as I mentioned in my opening statement, is with the tightness of access to capital, retailers are shifting the risk of their operations and expansion over to the landlords. So while retail only constitutes a very small portion of these larger assets that we're focusing on today, um, the landlord, in many cases, is bearing the brunt of having to fund and bring these quasi-amenities into the infrastructure of their building. So that is a little bit of the, of the doom and gloom, per se, of how the, the, the macro economy is, is affecting retail. What I want to go into, though, is something that's a little bit more optimistic, um, and that is the perspective on, on the retailer. Um, and I promise we'll, we'll make this quick, Dave. Um, but you know, as I mentioned, we are in a, a time of great disruption. Um, and, and I think, it, you know, if I ask for a show of hands in the room as to who's using Amazon uh, to shop on a daily basis, I could tell you we have more Amazon boxes arriving at my household on a daily basis than I've, I could ever possibly imagine. Um, that is a point of disruption in, in the world of, of retailing. Um, there is increasing pressure on profitability and return of capital. Um, and at the same time, there is a need to grow and evolve and figure out a strategy for a much more sustainable future. Um, we believe that that is there. We believe we are at a moment where this change and evolution and bankruptcies and restructuring and retooling is actually really good for, for retail um, as, as a whole. Um, and so what does this ultimately mean? Um, and how is it transactional? Um, I believe that the future retailer is not going to just be selling products. Um, that retailer is going to have to figure out a way to introduce a service piece that affects the overall lives of their consumer. Um, and that ranges from healthcare to finance, travel to entertainment. Um, you can see on the slide that I have up, um, I, by this time, I'm sure everybody's familiar with omni-channel and the term and what it means. Uh, it's the retailer's ability to hit the consumer in multiple different avenues. So not only are you coming into that actual storefront, but you have the ability to transact online. You're seeing that individual retailer through your social media and various different sources. Um, the type of transaction and evolution that we're talking about today is really about these, these wholesale you know, household names and retailers that are introducing other service lines into their infrastructure. So when you think about CVS and Walgreens starting to take a capital position in pharmaceutical companies, um, that is a strong movement where they're not just selling you a product, but they're getting into the entire life cycle of what it's like to be in that healthcare arena. Um, the next evolution of that we think we're going to see are retailers that are stepping into the B2B arena. So not only are they trying to drive their bottom line revenues by selling you a product, a widget, um, but also they're thinking about what the accessibility is to you as the consumer inside their four walls and how they can monetize that experience. So let me give you an example. If you took the top three retailers that exist in North America, we as consumers spend more time in their physical stores than we do watching TV. So those retailers today are thinking about how they can monetize advertising within their stores, how they can you know, get to you as a consumer with a specific advertising brand and drive a whole new level of revenue stream that isn't about selling you just a widget. And so at the end of the day, when you look at these companies and their ability to access capital, their ability to trade on the public markets, you know, only a portion of that market capitalization will come from selling you a widget. We anticipate that other 
other lines of profitability will come from things such as advertising, marketing, you know, selling you a service line. Um, and as crazy as it sounds, today, I think that's where the retailer of the future will, will see success. So um, hopefully that gives you a little bit more of an optimistic vantage point from the retailer perspective. Brian, I think you and I still have a couple years ahead of us um, where we're not financing these operations, but uh, I'm going to look forward to the, the, the questions later. Thanks, Dave. Perfect. Thanks, Ted. As you mentioned that, it reminds me a little bit about what's happened in my house in the last year with Amazon. Not only do all the boxes arrive, but she welcomes me at home when I get home with my Amazon Echo. <clears throat> I tell her to turn on my TV, which is controlled by an Amazon Fire Stick. And all along the way, there's advertisements in there, right? So that's part of that complete... <laughs> you got me big got time. All right, so let me introduce Guy, uh, head of R&D platform in the real estate and workplace services at Google. Google R&D is the ideas workshop for the built environment, a dynamic team within Google that is focused on creating scalable innovations for the future of Google's buildings and workspace. The team designs and builds experiments, prototypes, and mock-ups of solutions for Google's highest priority, ambitious real estate innovation needs. Born and raised in New Jersey with New York in his backyard, Guy knew early on that buildings were in his future. Fast forward today, he's a real estate professional with more than 30 years of experience in leading all aspects of real estate solutions, including strategy development, planning, and project execution. His portfolio includes more than 30 million square feet of new constructed projects globally. Prior to joining Google, Guy held leadership roles in real estate organizations delivering solutions for clients such as WeWork, Apple, Yelp, and the Golden Gate Theater of San Francisco. Welcome, Guy. Thank you. Um, really, and thanks to everybody, really do appreciate uh, the opportunity. When I was asked <clears throat> to, to participate in this and I saw the invite list and my, my good friend Todd was on that, I was like, oh, definitely. Um, Todd and his business partner, Phil, and I go back a few years and have had some good times together. So it's, it's really great to, to be a part of this. Um, I lived here in the 90s, moved to San Francisco in 2000. And moved and lived there for 22 years, and just moved, and 21 years just moved back. So I've gotten to see San Chicago change over 30 years. Um, the West Loop, where our offices are, didn't exist like it does today. So it's really been exciting for me, kind of seeing Chicago new and all over again. Um, and as as a as a resident, if you will. Um, as, he, as Todd, uh, David mentioned, I am with the real estate organization um, where our mission is to deliver spaces and experiences that allow Google to thrive. Um, it's not just a building, it's an experience. It's whether you, know, whether you take the shuttle bus, it's the meals that are provided, it's the, 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 the cafe and so forth. Um, your entire daily experience, you know, one way or another, Ruse is touching all of that. Within... The Ruse organization, we are the crazy ones. Um, R&D, we do celebrate failure, if you will, come up with as crazy an idea as you possibly can. For so long, you know, most of my career, I was an architect prior to moving over to the owner side. Um, and a lot of times, you were always there thinking, oh, is it the right idea? Is someone going to blame me if it went wrong? Flip that script. Now it's how crazy can you be? Let's let's build a building upside down, inside out. Come up with the, the craziest idea. So we're celebrating that. So when you take that risk away, you take away any of the you know punishment. If it's freeing, and then all of a sudden you you do come up with with all kinds of ideas. Um, not just designing the buildings, but my role specifically is, is playing with Legos. And not only playing with the Legos, but we invent the Legos. I am creating the Lego kits for how we are going to design and build buildings. Because we look at it for a 100-year lifespan. That's R&D. We're not solving the, the transition to hybrid or, or work office of the future. We're creating the new Legos just at a much bigger scale. <clears throat> That's not Photoshop. That's a real, that's, I went on the website, this thing called Google, and found that picture. <laughs> By the way, with all of your Amazon Echo, you know there's Google smart devices. We can talk about that. <laughs> um, so like I said, we are rethinking buildings. And that's what I'm working on right now is creating that, that playbook, the Lego kits, especially in today's environment where, you know, you look at office occupancies 
if we have people that are coming into the office not five days a week, well, what does our real estate portfolio really look like? How big a building? We're not building it for 100% occupancy five days a week anymore. So we need to create a scalable solution. We need to come up with new parts and not be reconfiguring all the time. Um, here, this is a project, adaptive reuse, right? Why, why go build new buildings if there are all these other empty buildings? This building here uh, down in Playa Vista near LA, the old warehouse that Howard Hughes built his Spruce Goose in, it's our Playa Vista office. So again, taking historic buildings, adaptive reuse, trying to save them, prevent them from going to landfill. Um, there's this little project over here in LaSalle, some of you may know of it, where we're gonna be moving in in a few years. Um, but again, just, you know, saving that building from demolition. Although I will be really happy to see the salmon in Lake Blue go away. <laughs> I was here in the 90s right after it opened, and as an architect, there were a lot of my architects friends who were like, what the heck? So, um, and again, going back to built, designing buildings for the 100-year life. So this is our newest campus in Charleston East, or I'm sorry, Bayview. And it was con conceived as a, as a giant canopy under which there is a village. So that, that structure, if you look at it, all bolted connections, no welded connections. Because 80 years from now, if we decide to take this down, let's unbolt it and try to repurpose the parts. So we're coming up with solutions that, that, uh, that address those types of thinking. And then also the interiors, you can see it's, it's just this large platform down at the ground floors, the market, the cafes, the interactive spaces, the second floor, the main floor where all of the workspaces are. That's what we call soft architecture. If you look, with the exception of the elevator shaft, nothing's hard construction. It's all demountable walls. It's all soft architecture. We can repurpose, reorganize. So those, those architectural solutions that you see up there on that second floor are products that came out of the R&D lab, came out of our innovation lab. And so we're creating those solutions that allow us to, to continue to, to morph and evolve over time. And then finally, um, sustainability is carb net zero carbon free, huge, huge uh, directive for, from our leadership, as well as for me as a, someone who's been surfing for 40 years, watching the envir environment change, I take it personally, to try to make the world a better place. So here um, is, our, is our, one of our newest mass timber buildings. We have five of them under construction. Um, something Brian had alluded to, he and I, I'm sure, are going to go down a rabbit hole about mass timber. But again, it's this building, it's all dry. It, the wood, there's no, um, you know, we can disassemble it. You can repurpose the wood. A hundred years from now, you can, you know, whether it's pulp for paper or what have you. But it's also a healthier environment, no coatings. It provides a, a healthier environment for the occupants. It has been proven, and we have data on it, that a wood building actually lowers your cortisol levels, that stress, that fight or flight mechanism we have in us. So it actually is a healthier building mentally and physically. There are studies where there was a wing of a hospital that was steel and concrete and the other wing was mass timber. The mass timber patients healed and, and left the hospital 20% faster. So there, there's just, we can go on for all day long, but this is, these are the Lego kits. So I'm now building a Lego kit and a playbook for how we do mass timber but also not custom, it's a kit we can give to our partners to then go and design. They don't have to reinvent the wheel. We've negotiated procurement relationships with mass timber fabricators, so it's economical, it's speed to market, and it's healthy. So it just, it, it, it really is this holistic solution. Um, and I'm sure we're gonna dive into more of that later. So thank That's you. Good. Perfect. Great, thank you, Guy. Um, so let me start the questions. We have one microphone at least, a couple microphones going around. So I'll prime it with a couple questions and then feel free to uh, uh, wave down the person with the microphone. Where are the microphones right now? One up front here. Okay, great. So Teresa will make her way around. All right, question for Guy to start off. Uh, you mentioned the salmon building in the loop, uh, the Thompson Center, the State of Illinois building. Um, tell us a little bit about that move because Google had already made a big investment in the West Loop. Um, what did that building, what is, what is your company's philosophy on Chicago as like one of your five major hubs? Yeah, and Chicago, um, even before, you know, the, the more recent struggle, Chicago was always seen as a growth market for us. Um, we, we were continuing to expand and the, the, the Thompson Center is right in the center of the business district. So it, it, was, it was a really great location. Landmark building and landmark presence in the loop. Um, but also, 
a huge driver was the accessibility to transportation. You know, there are so it, it's this nexus of transportation lines. And so all of our folks can get to and from the building much easier. Um, yeah, the West Loop and Fulton Market is, is an awesome neighborhood, a lot of fun. But we have shuttle buses from train stations and other places to get us out there. So it's, it's not always that convenient. So that the transportation and in the business district was a huge driver. Um, and, I, you know, again, personally, the adaptive reuse and saving it and not, not saving it for architectural reasons, saving it so it doesn't go into landfill, I thought was a really great, you know, success story as well. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it, you know, David, you and I were talking, it's coming from the Bay Area, the population density is very different, right? So the Bay Area, metropolitan area, has around four and a half million people. And I'm going to say some numbers, and if I get them wrong, I apologize. I'm sure other people have more accurate numbers. But this is just to illustrate the point. Out of four and a half million, there are 350,000 tech, tech seats, tech job seats. So you're, you can see you have a really small pool to draw from for 350,000 people. In Chicago, we've got the larger metropolitan area, about nine million twice the population of the Bay Area, 15,000 tech jobs. There's this untapped resource here. Why not just you know, land here and, and really take the benefit of all of that, plus all the, the, the colleges, universities that are in this area in the region? It's, just, it's a ripe spot for us for, for growth and expansion. Um, the other thing is, in the Bay Area, between Google, Meta, Apple, that's like 25% of the tech jobs are in those three. So we're cannibalizing from each other every day. They're just playing musical chairs. Here, not so much. So it, it's, it's, just, it's a long-term play for us, for sure. That's right. Twice the population, 15,000 versus 350,000. About that. Um, about that. Yeah. Amazing. Um, what is Google's work from office policy? What's the work from home policy? Um, it is, it's... Work from office sounded better. It did, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, um, it, it, We have such a diverse population, you know, of 175,000 employees. It, it depends on the teams. Generally, it's, they're, they're giving us the, the choice. They, they're suggesting three days a week. But if you go to data centers, they're there 24-7 because cloud has to stay up and running, right? So different business units have different models. Within the real estate organization, they're saying, yeah, three days a week would, would be great. Um, and, and some teams will, will dictate that a little bit more. You know, hey, Monday through Wednesday or Wednesday through Friday, um, we're, we're using, you know, smart calendar tools and AI to kind of group teams together so we all know when we're all together. Uh, now, I'm in the office at least three days a week because I choose to be, because it's just being able to connect with human beings again um, after three years, two years at home. And... Uh, with 12-year-old twins, dad had to run out of the house and go talk to adult conversation. Um, although my 12-year-old daughter is like talking to an 80-year-old woman. Um, so it is, it really is inspiring, those, those water cooler conversations in, in a, a, a community at Google where it is about innovation. It's just, it's exciting to do that. But our policy is, is within the real estate org, they've asked us to be in three days a week. Great. Todd, how about you? What's your company's philosophy on work from office and what are you seeing with your clients? From a philosophical perspective, I think the expectation is that you're in the office three days a week. I can tell you that my team who's here today, um, with a very small window on the onset of COVID, my team is in the office um, every day. And we are definitely an outlier uh, relative to, to the two and a half floors that we occupy in our building. But um, we, one, we like each other. Two, we're more effective sitting next to each other. You know, I can't tell you how often I pop into my partner's office and ask, you know, the status of a model. Um, and, you know, we realign what's priority for that day. That, those are tasks that, you know, you just don't do from, from sitting, you know, 20, 30, or, or in our case, you know, some of us sit you know, 100 miles from one another. Um, we are a more effective and efficient team because we're, we're next to each other. And I think it's given, you know, our small partnership a competitive advantage against other folks that, that are not doing that. So, um, you know, while it's stipulated to be in the office three days a week, Dave, I, you know, I think the, the four or five of us have made the decision that we're, we're better and, and happier being together. That's great. 
Brian, you, you founded an initiative after all. What's your philosophy on this? I think we should all be in the office every day. I don't think, I don't think the opportunity, quick question. How many architects are in the room? How many of those architects wrote an article in 2018 that it was important to have open space with interactive collaborative office environments so we could have collisions of peoples for new ideas? Serendipitous collisions. Anybody? Exactly. So are those collisions only happen Tuesday through Thursday? It's ridiculous. I am all in on flexible work. I am out, completely out on hybrid work. Hybrid work is, is a strategy to allow people to give them what they really want, which is the ability I read, I told you guys this morning, I read in my kindergarten son's class this morning. I got in at 10. Did anybody ask? Nobody cared where I was. That is a flexible work environment. I spend the rest of the day down here with this team, with my team. We're doing things every single day. The idea that we can magically make things happen for three days a week is, is insanity to me. And I said I was going to rant about it. You want me to go in on anything else right away? <laughs> I was going to move the table out of the way. Yeah. So you had a little bit more room. Um, well, let's talk about some of the things that are, I, we had a prep lunch and talking about this, and one of the things we talked about a lot was mentorship, right? Like, I think it's, uh, it may not, we might prove at a leadership level why it matters, but what about the next generation of leaders if they're not meeting with us? What do you think about that, Brian? Well, I, I think you hear that often, right? So there, there's young folks who say, well, I like the flexibility that I have, and I can do this, that, and the other. And then we have senior folks who are saying, well, hey, I don't want to be into the office. If we talk to our, our users, if we talk to the tenants, almost without fail, the senior leaders are saying, we want people in the office for the reasons that we just talked about. And then you have this... Confusion between, well, the young folks say, well, the senior leaders aren't here. The senior leaders are saying, well, the young folks aren't here. The reality is, is that you do need that mentorship. And I was talking with a, with a former colleague today. When I was in my 20s, the amount of learning that occurred, not through directed call, not through a 2 o'clock meeting, but just happened collaboratively, is a real live thing. And I do understand that there's a different shift in generation, and you can have that connectivity in a digital form. But there's long-term trusting relationships are built through interpersonal interactions. And um, I, I'm willing to go to the mat on that all day long, and I, and I just sincerely believe it. I believe it believe, creates lifetime relationships, and it creates business success. Yeah. And so let's talk a little bit, though, because those same designers that raised their hand that wrote that article in 2018, uh, the strategy was to dense pack desks, right? And so monitors were touching. Right. Chairs were bumping into each other. That's not the work environment I want to go back to. So in your buildings you're constructing, what are these work environments looking like now? Well, so we can talk a little bit about transformational real estate. And Todd touched on it, right? So the retail space is going different. The retail space now has obligations to give a broader scope of services. And the same thing is implied in the office environment. If we look at our office environments, whether it's how we select a neighborhood to be in and how that impacts how people live or how we build around the building, and is there outdoor space? Is there park space? Is there amenity lounge? Is there uh, F&B, which is critically important for Todd's clients to make us pay for? All of those pieces <laughs> of the puzzle come into what, how we transform real estate. And a big mission that we are seeing kind of across our portfolio, less so in Chicago but in other markets, is this notion of space and place where you have mixed-use communities where we're doing multifamily housing, we're doing an office building, we're doing a retail component, and we're, we're activating spaces. And Children's Site or uh, Lincoln Commons is a microcosm of that, but that really transformed the central hub of a community. And we think it's incredibly important to, to both draw people into the office and give them an experience once they're there. It's almost a 15-minute neighborhood vertically sure. within your building. And you had mentioned that you're even designing towers differently now. Like before the base building architect designed it and then you figured out where the amenities go. How are you doing that now? Correct. So we're working on a new project um, which isn't really in the press and I don't know if the press is here so I won't announce what the address is. But we've got a new tower project and historically we would work with the design architect on how do we design a, an office building. And then once that building was kind of put together we would look at it and say well what are the parts and pits we can put into it. This time around we're looking at it differently. We're working with a base building design architect and then we're also working with an interiors firm that is helping us navigate the amenitization around each other. So they come together at the same time rather than saying well here's our box and let's put the things into it. We're trying to figure out how do we make sure all of these parts collaborate with the boxes in the design phase. So it's more of an experience. 
it's totally focused on the experience, and it's totally focused about bringing energy into the space. I mean, the reality is, is we all we all look around. An energetic day on Wednesday is still only 50 to 60 percent of what it should be. So we're looking for ways to drive traffic into the buildings and not just pass through the buildings, but to have them be there, interact, collaborate, go to their space, creating multiple seats so people aren't sitting side by side in their desk, but they can come downstairs and work. They might work in their space. They might work outdoors. They might work in the park. Whatever the case might be, might work in their child's school. They might work in their child. I didn't do a lot of work this morning. <laughs> Guy, tell us about your dread twenty years ago walking into the Xerox building. Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's it, it it ties exactly to what Brian was saying. So it's, I mean, you imagine when I was here, you know, I just remember at the end before I left that job and gave notice. I'd be like walking down the street, I'd get off the 156 LaSalle bus, walk down Monroe, and as I got closer and saw the building, like I could feel the knot in my chest, the little black rain cloud over my head. I'm like, I really don't want to be in there. Um, and I think, you know, that was the office of the 90s, yeah. right? It wasn't a fun Just place. An office. It was an elevator lobby. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and everybody, you went to your desk. It was, you know, whack-a-mole cubicles, right? Um, and it was just, it, it was Dilbert, you know, what it was all based on. And so, so here, being able to play with Legos, like Brian was talking about, the, on the owner-occupier side of it, this is exactly what we're doing within, within our Google real estate portfolio is, I, I used the, the analogy of like when my kids were three and I came home from work and I opened the door and you hear the footsteps coming down the hallway and like, dad, 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 and you drop your backpack and it was just, you felt the world wash over and you're like, oh, it's so good to be home. You were inspired and like your face lit up. What if you could have that experience when you go through the front door at your office? You open the door and you're like, I'm so happy to be here. Here's all these great inspiring people. Like Todd was saying, he and Phil, when they run into each other, that's the experience we're creating. So it's like you have the coffee bar in our office, and I sit there and have breakfast with colleagues, right? It's when you, the, the part about flexibility is great, but what are they getting at home that they're not getting in the office? So we're providing that at the office where people want to be in there, right? It's, it's pushing that almost like hospi super hospitality experience, and it's just inspiring. So when you're emotionally invested in it, you become more productive. So those are the spaces we're creating. Yeah. I found that our, our Friday office is actually remarkably busy because we, like many of you, probably travel. We have projects. People are out of town. They come back. And Friday ends up being kind of that old school consultant day where they all come back to the office. And we have a great vibe on yeah. Fridays right now. And it really is an intangible part of, of getting people back to the office. Like, well, well, yeah, I'll be in on Friday. You may not be there all day. You might leave early, you might come in late, whatever the case might be. But there is a congregation of, of activity in throughout a Friday. It, it's remarkable, I would say, com compared to what we see in other markets. Did moving the bar cart from 5 p.m. to 3 p.m. help? <laughs> you know what helped was uh, the boss putting the pipeline call in the middle of Friday afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> So tell me a little bit about then on your multi-tenant buildings. Does it affect the, if when you're building all these amenities scattered through the building, does it affect the amount of space your tenants are taking? Because there's other spaces in the building that they go to, so it's not just going to their office? Yeah, for sure. I mean, a couple of the larger deals we're looking at right now, it is, it is a concentrated effort to offload their conferencing and meeting space onto tenant. Um, we're working on, that's an important part of them. They don't need that space, but they do need the quarterly all-hands call or whatever the case might be. Can they move that off the tenant and onto landlord? And can we make that space something that is active every day, not just the four days that they don't want to pay for it? So that's a big part of the puzzle. And then I do think the amenitization, the F&B, I mean, Todd and I are working on a few transactions where we're just trying to create a place for people to grab their coffee and go, and they don't need to stay in that coffee space, but we actually want them to spill out in the lobbies, right? Yeah. Have, come into the lobby, create an energy, do something you know, for... Yeah, 10, 15 years ago, you, you know, your, your tenant was tethered to a desk because there was a, a hard computer, yeah. right? And there wasn't the iPad or, or laptops or, or cell phones or the ability to actually transact work throughout a building stack. And so... You know, a lot of what we're talking about, these guys are both being incredibly humble here. The stuff that they're building is shit that doesn't exist, right? I've been at the initial dance with both of them, and they put shovel in ground, and they're creating stuff that evolves throughout the entire construction process because they're both striving to build something that's never been done before. You know, 10 years ago, it was, hey, let's turn this office building into something that's more hospitable. You know, the, the, the idea of this hospitality, let's feel more like a hotel. Let's, you know, feel more like something that's very boutique and, and hands-on interactive. 
Like, that's cool. We're now on, like, version two, three, or four of that. Like, that's just not enough. And so, you know, day one, we're thinking about, you know, in these multi-tenant environments, how do you get different offerings throughout an entire building stack? How is it an extension of your workplace? So if you're a law firm, you're not just tethered to the 50,000 square feet that you lease, but you've got moments throughout a building that not only apply to your different demos of worker, um, but transform over the course of the day and the day of the week. So, you know, it's challenging. You know, my clients on, you know, the development side aren't thinking about monetizing every little inch the way we were in years past. It's thinking about how do we get the best concept in, in category first to market into, into this environment. It, so. And it is layering in services, right? I mean, you talked about it on the retail side. It's not just the hard good of here's your office space. It is the programmatic piece of it. And at Riverpoint, for example, came down the elevator yesterday and I said, geez, there's something going on in this lobby literally every day. And that's because we specifically have a program manager that is designed to make sure there's something going on in that lobby every day or something happening in the conference room or something happening on the park or some level of engagement across the spectrum of services so that when people come to the office, it's not just that pass-through environment. It is something that we're providing an, an experience. A couple summers ago, real quick, yeah, Brian built um, Wolf, Wolf Point East, which is, you know, that the residential campus right in front of the Mart. And, you know, we were challenged to go get a, a coffee operator, right, for the ground floor. And it sounds like really easy, right? You just go, there's a gazillion coffee operators out there. And then we sit down with Heinz and say, well, you know, we'd really like it to serve alcohol, right? And we'd really like them to also program the outside plaza. And we'd like it to be best in class and have credit for, so, you know, what really ends up- Nobody's there. They ended up, you know, we, we did a deal with, with Blue Bottle, um, which is kind of a household name today. But at that time, it was the first deal that they had ever done in Chicago. And not only that, but we got them to create a whole new line of offering that they had never done before, right? And, and it was bespoke to here. So, you know, it, as as simple as saying, all right, how do you continue to push and evolve? Um, you know, Guy and I have worked on projects where they literally didn't know the product that was going to be sold. What, what was the widget that was going to be sold in the actual space, right? So when he talks about being R&D, this guy's not just forced to, you know, design new building materials and et cetera, but he's got, you know, a gazillion other designers that are pushing product to him that you didn't even think about trying to sell or monetize when that project started. You know, when we did the Starbucks roastery, um, you know, there was no 45,000 square foot concept. And with that construction timeline, we were starting to build and, and finalize that deal well before they knew how that space was going to be merchandised. So in retail, like, that's what gets us exciting. It's trying to figure out, you know, how do we push the boundaries of what the standard operation looks like um, so that we're setting up success for the future. The phrase I've heard is high-end office buildings, right? Like, it's, it's very different than in the 80s when there was a barber in the pedway that connected two buildings across the street. Like, it's, it's an amenity. And to some it extent, would be a great amenity, though. The right barber would it be would a great be, amenity. Right. <laughs> Especially if they had the cooler of beer right. that they offer exactly. you. Of course. You don't um, see many shoe shines either. No. That's a good amenity, too. But they don't exist now. I, you don't see very many of them. You have to pick up and go. Yeah. We do it as a service now. Honestly, no. I mean, you pick it up and you can drop it and we'll pick it up and then do them for the day and bring it back to folks. Yeah. It seems like we're finally, I mean, I always say that a, a, you never let a good pandemic go to waste or any major crisis fuels innovation. But the office building you're describing sounds mm -hmm. like it's kind of a nice counterpoint to the home amenity that people got used to for those couple of years, right? It's, it's a reason for the, your coworkers. Guy, I heard your coworkers run at you the same way that your kids did when you entered yeah. the building. <laughs> yeah. They hug you. They, we do. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a really, really close family. For sure. it's, it's stretched. I mean, it, you know, Heinz, Mr. Heinz, Jerry Heinz was an engineer, right? And so the whole, the lore of the Heinz office was that it was born out of an engineer and HVAC systems and mechanical systems are always very important. The reality is the pandemics forced us to reevaluate that. And we will execute at a different level post-pandemic on, on our next tower than we have in the past. And that is an outcome that is driven by people focused on fresh air, 
people focus on circulation, people focus on you know how we move throughout the building and what that how people feel. It's driven us to focus on outdoor space and curtain wall and all those different factors. Yeah. So it has created the opportunity for innovation. Um, and you do see the market respond to it. I mean, you read it in the paper, it's flight to quality. It's also a flight to experience. It doesn't have to be brand new. Guy brings up a great point and folks that are focused on sustainability or ESG, if you want to focus on the sustainability aspect, you really don't want to build ground up. I'm not supposed to say that, but it's true. <laughs> but the reality is, like, the repurposing of existing structure is, is a better path for, for those goals. It's not to say that you can't create operational efficiencies on the other side, but it's really thinking about the real estate in a much more meaningful way, and not only how it brings people into the space and how they look and feel when they're there, but also what it means for a long-term sustainability goal. What's the next 100 years? How does that product fit into the market? Yeah, what I've noticed with the Loop Alliance, too, is with the Sundays on State or events that we do in the alleys, there's a tremendous amount of history. And, I mean, when we're in those alleys having the party, almost you think back 100 years to what was in that exact same space. And if the buildings had all been torn down and built back up, or if we were trying to do something like that in a suburb, right. you don't have that same sort of nostalgic memory to it, which, at the end of the day, we're all memory creators, right? We want to create those memories. All right, so I think we're at a good point. Teresa has a microphone. Um, she's going to do her best to fill Donahue and try to... <laughs> Some people laughed at that. Uh, who's got a question? The old one's left at that. <laughs> All the way in the back. Go, Phil. She never saw Phil Donahue. Is Phil still alive? I don't know. Good afternoon. Um, thank you for your time for the transparent dialogue. My name is Ezgi with Gilbane. My question comes from um, a note that Guy made earlier on mass timber. Just wondering some of the constraints you're seeing locally in Chicago and in, in Illinois for a lot of those projects to actually come to reality. Um, it's the constraints we find in most markets actually are uh, the the local AHJ, the the building departments, the code officials. They're Brian said it earlier. We're we're and Todd said it too. We're we're doing things that code officials haven't seen, and so that. What we're doing, like a concurrent effort is, what can we get adopted in the building code ahead of time? What can we do with UL listing or you know ASTM and all these other certifications to then educate the building officials? Because having sat in the building department 30 years ago pulling permits, go back today, hasn't really changed much. They're still looking at the things the same way. That's our biggest obstacle right now. Um, it's, it was great in the in the Bay Area because you know they were all for it, except they said, "But you have to stop at 85 feet." Well, we're in downtown San Jose. We want to do a 16-story mass timber building. They're like, "Oh, you can't. It's all got to be enclosed. The gravity load columns have to be enclosed." It's always educating. That's our biggest struggle right now. Um, what's been great is on the, the fabrication piece. The suppliers are are right there with us. We're pushing the envelope on that. The other challenge we're seeing is, and I'd be curious to hear from Brian, is supply chain. There's more backlog in the U.S. right now than we have, you know, timber available. So someone like a fabricator like Storenzo over in Europe, their entire capacity is greater than all of the major fabricators in North America combined. So we're going over there to get, get their, their timber. Um, we can go down the sustainability piece. It's actually still sustainable for transportation and so forth. But I'd say right now we're, we're, we're starting to see a little more supply chain challenges, but it's really the, the, the government agencies that are our biggest obstacle at the moment. Agree, both of those two facts. I mean, the reality is being limited to 85 feet, particularly in a high-density market like Chicago, it, it's ec economically does not work to build a six- or seven-story building. If we could get to 12 or 15, and frankly, timber could be built to... 40. I mean, again, the architects in the room could talk about it more um, refined manner, but that's a big... And then the capacity. I mean, we brought our, our wood in from Austria, and so it's really the fabricators being able to scale up and, and meet the demand. Um, and I think that will change. There's big companies out there that are looking at ways to, to enhance it. Well, it seems like something we, we want to focus on, and it's a little bit of a what comes first. Right, the demand or the supply? I think the demand is definitely there. And I, I, I believe the, the future of some of these suburban park plays is to create a sustainable 200,000 square foot. If you were 600,000 square feet, 
two years ago or, or five years ago, and you need to be 200,000 square feet, but you still want to stay in the urban camp or suburban campus, what better path to do that than to go ground up with, with timber construction? We could build it in under 24 months. You could be in space. It's a great sustainability story. It, it would attract your workers back to the office environment. That's a free plug. Well, the, the <laughs> not take, really free. Taken. The, the, the health benefit that guy quoted too with the with the hospital, right? Like it's, that's staggering. And those are absolutely true. And we have all the same data points. And if you um, if you want to check out a website that's got great data on, it's called Think Wood. Um, and there's really wonderful information out there, and, and the research is proving. And it just feels better. And we talk about this all the time. We've taken a couple groups down to Atlanta where we have a completed project. And we've toured a lot of vacant office space in our day. And I can tell you, nobody walks in and starts touching the concrete. But everybody walks in and starts touching the wood. <laughs> yeah. All right, we got a question over here. Wow. Um, incredible panel. Jill with DLR Group. Hi, everyone. Um, Three dreamers, to coin a Google term, these are moonshots you've had for years. A lot of ways to measure if it's successful or not. A lot of metrics that are probably coming your way that you hadn't even had maybe last year. Can you talk a little bit about how to stay motivated um, in kind of the current onslaught of data and proof that we're experiencing today? I thought you were gonna say, how do you stay motivated in the current uh, economic climate? <laughs> That's her follow-up question. <laughs> That's the follow-up. What do you think about interest rates? Um, you know, I, I, I do. I, I think that the data is actually incredibly empowering for us, right? I mean, I think there's a lot of research out there, and groups like DLR Group and others are are providing it in terms of what workers want. Um, so I think it's incredibly motivating, not necessarily overwhelming. Yeah, the the data we're seeing, like it, it's really how many people are coming in, right? The occupancy yeah. is also driving our, our real estate strategy. And when I, when, cause we, I get, you know, a, a weekly report internally showing, hey, here's, here's how many people come in one day a week, two days a week and what have you. We really only have nine months of data if you think about when people started coming back in. So if you, all you have is three quarters, we cannot build a real estate strategy on it. We're trying to. We are, you know, like I, the one with the big canopy and it's open platform and then it's movable. We're trying to develop a building solution that allows us that flexibility. But right now, we just don't have enough data having come out of the pandemic. And I don't think people know. I mean, the reality is if you talk to users, many of them just don't know. I mean, we, we had an um, international insurance firm. We're in lease with two-year extension. We need to kick the can down the road. New CEO came in. We're in lease. They said... Time out, we need a 10-year deal, all new, and we're growing. It's, it's like, talk about whiplash. I mean, it's great news, but we're, it's, reacting to, it's reacting to how different individuals are thinking about this, how do we return to work, and what they're going to try and drive. We've heard some fascinating stories about people really pushing their employees back to work, and then it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that all plays out in the next six months. Probably time for one or two more questions. Teresa's got the mic. Um, let's talk a Let's talk really quickly, your comments on some of these kind of developments you're doing that have housing, office, mixed use. Um, you know, the loop and downtown, maybe not the West Loop so much, was heavily dependent on nine to five workforce. 375,000 daily workers. Um, if we're at 54% of that on a five day work week averaged, um, what is your future ball look at as far as what the downtown is gonna be five years from now? We already know it's the fastest growing residential neighborhood of an urban center in, this, in the country. Uh, there's 55,000 college students. Like, there's a lot of other drivers. What do you see the downtown being in the future? You know, we, we, coach, we coach retail growth on a daily basis. And, you know, if you're a retailer looking to come into the greater Chicago metro, the stats that you just rattled off are still very scary, right? Because you're reliant upon footfall and eyeballs and you know, percentage of a wallet share. And at 55%, that's not, that's not good enough. Now, here's the reality is this, when you open up, you know, the trip and, and the first page is all of these buildings that are going to move over from, you know, office to, to residential density, that actually bodes fairly well for a retailer because now we start stop, stopping the underwriting of just five days a week, 
Monday through Friday, um, you know, from nine to three, and we now expand the day and the demographic that we can reach with residents living in this population. So, um, you know, we're looking at it from the, the perception of what's what's gross sales potential, um, and and all the stats you rattle off, um, they're better. They're not good enough, yep. um, and we need to get there from yep. from a retail perspective. Yeah, I heard a worker, friend of mine that is in the office three days a week, uh, working from remotely two days. But what she found was that she had kind of capacity to bring her family back down on the weekend. So there you're trading two worker days for a family of four. It's probably a net plus as far as spending power then, right? So before when she was working 50 hours a week, five days a week, the last thing she wanted to do was come back downtown. I'll give her a list of restaurants to attend. They all need her sale. <laughs> well, it, I, I think the, the downtown, they don't need to be mutually exclusive, right? right? I mean, that, that worker can come downtown five days a week, and that worker can populate our sandwich shops and the sundry shops and the shoeshine and the, the barber. You know, the, those, those folks are in the central business district are dying, and they're going away, and they're going away. Should I go in on this point? Oh, go ahead. Okay. They are going away unless we unless we unless we change the way that we do things. And and there was a post. There was an article in uh, Cranes this week, and I just reposted it as well. This group's already heard it. But the CBD, the Central Loop, is not at full capacity. Eighty percent of the government office space in the city is located in the Central Loop. The courts are not open for ministerial duties or you know, pre-trial work. They're only meeting in person when there is an actual trial. And so there are thousands of workers that are not coming downtown on a regular basis because of that. And those restaurants will never come back if we don't have a concentration of people in the loop. And so Google can come in and, and change the world at the Thompson Center, and they will. But if we don't have support from the courthouses and the federal, state, county, workers coming back in in a meaningful population, the central loop is never going to change the way that we want or get back to where we want it to be. Yeah, and that, that is really, it's, it's something that I, we just saw the first article about it this week. Yeah. And you, you mentioned the federal workers are, they're passed a bill in um, Congress to try and get federal workers to come back to work in DC because the federal workers aren't there. And it's really damaging to the CBD in that area. And we, we just need to focus on it. It's another piece of the puzzle that, that needs to happen. 100%. One more question in the audience. So Brian, if with your uh, Joe Cushing, if with your uh, soft HR, soft-hearted HR hat on, uh, you did say, you know, flexible work, flexible workplace, not a hybrid. Great term. Did you sit down and put a few things down on paper to prove flexibility? Just some rules of thumb, because you do want to recruit people. You do want to know you're flexible. And I'm in a service industry. We really, really can't let people work from home. But if you, did you come up with any more concrete um, rules of thumb that could be helpful? And then scaled-down companies, we're not all Google. We don't have a lot of the firms, people have 12 to 20 employees. Have you seen anything cool, interactive, innovative um, new offices that are creating a good, fun, uh, uh, interactive work, uh, workplace just in the last to, in your to experience? To answer your first question, I, I don't have hard notes. We, we our, our, our team leaders have had a lot of conversations about what does it mean? Or do we do four and one? I mean, we are an office investor, developer. We need to be, if nobody's in the office, if we're not in the office, then who is? Um, but I think you, you do start to formulate, when you start to talk to all these people, what do they want? What they really want is flexibility. And what you ask them what they want when they're in the office, they want to be next to their workers. So there's a marriage there that occurs when, when you come into the office. You can't be with your workers. And so I think that is something that really has to, you know, be broader, broader acceptance. And then in terms of the workspace, again, there's a lot of architects in the room that are smarter than me on this. But I would tell you, we haven't seen a dramatic shift in the way people are building space with the, with the exception that there are more meeting rooms or Zoom rooms or call rooms because almost every meeting has somebody with a screen in front of them. But in terms of highly unusual space, I think we're still focusing on multiple places to sit, multiple places for people to work so they don't have that experience when they're, that, you know, at home, you're sitting in the same spot every day. If you come downtown, we could, let me sit in the cafe, or I'm going to work downstairs at the, at the lounge. I'm going to work up at my desk. I've got, and creating these different zones, I do think people are focused on that from an office design. And we are from a building design. 
Okay, great. Well, that was our last question. So uh, thanks, everyone. And just give me a minute here to wrap up. As a reminder, today's session has been audio recorded um, and will appear on the Cornet website as a podcast. So check it out there and share it with your business associates that should have been in the room with us uh, to hear the conversation. So a quick recap of what I heard. Up until the time that referee ran out onto the court uh, in Salt Lake City to cancel the NBA season, we all thought we were going to be gone from the office for a couple days, maybe a week. The week turned into months, turned into years, uh, and we realized that a new habit had formed. And according to the data that we heard today, uh, it's a new habit that's obviously taken root. The reality is that we're experiencing a generational shift in work, just as the iPhone allowed us and now actually demands us to work anywhere, anytime. uh, The pandemic highlighted that we got some time back in our day. It brought a better balance to our lives. And in fact, working from home statistically saved workers 72 72 minutes per day of commuting on average around the world. But at what cost? Uh, The panelists very clearly said mentorship, company culture, events like this are all important aspects of business and have always been. And today's panelists showed us that while the pendulum swung far on that March 2020 day, now we're pushing for more equilibrium that allows more of a life balance and accelerated work at the same time. So new office buildings we heard are going to look different than before. Uh, No longer will there be monitors touching each other uh, and employees packed so densely. But whenever I look to the past for hope for the future, I think back to the companies that are so ubiquitous today, Uber, Lyft, Airbnb. All these companies uh, were started during the 2009 economic crisis. Uh, So major shifts always require and kind of grow innovation and what we heard from our panelists today, there seems to be a movement brewing that will lead us to the next, next decade with business and personal life with equal focus. Uh, in order to get there, civic organizations, city government, corporations, developers, and each of you uh, need to be agile and respond to these real estate changes. For we don't want to go back to the way it was before uh, the pandemic. And I look forward to seeing this reinvigorated downtown that's a vibrant and equitable place for all. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thanks to our panelists, Brian, Todd, Guy. Thanks to Cornet for hosting this panel discussion. uh, And thank for all of you for being here today.